Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Catholic Light. Thanks for joining me. And thanks for hanging for the last couple weeks. So it's been two weeks since our last episode. I don't think I told you before I left. Um, the reason why I took off a week is that my brother, Father Gregory, who's a Dominican priest for the prov- eastern province of St. Joseph, so he typically is in the Washington, D.C. area, has been studying for working on a Ph.D. in Switzerland for the last the last three years. And um, so last year, my dear friend Teresa and I went to visit him, but we met in France, did a, did a little trip with him there, and um, his time in Switzerland is ending. He comes home in about a month, and my sister Kristen said, um, you know what, not, not one of us has gone to visit him in his studying town, Freiburg, Switzerland, so we haven't seen, like, n- none of us has seen, you know, where he lives or studies. Uh, we should go. So a month before Greg is leaving Switzerland, uh, my sister Christy, my friend Teresa, and I flew out to meet him for a relatively quick visit to, again, see where he's been studying, meet his friends, and uh, kind of live the life with him for a few days and, and spend some time with him um, before he's off to the races. So uh, that's where we were. And um, it was a joy to be with, with my brother Greg. I, I think I've talked about him a number of times, but... If you're looking for another podcast, um, he and four other friars have had a podcast for about four years now called Godsplaining, also available on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And uh, what's their tagline? Contemporary, no, Contemplative Preachers, Contemporary Age, where they basically take up different topics each week. And two, two of the five friars, and they go in different combinations, will, you know, chat about a particular topic and, and shed some some beautiful, clarifying theological light on it. So if you're looking for another podcast, a Catholic podcast, I recommend Godsplaining. Um, my brother Greg also appears pretty frequently. Actually, I think he does like a monthly shtick on uh, Matt Frad's Pints with Aquinas. And then, um, you know, you can find him on another podcast as well. My sister jokes. So right now... Um, hustle or like being a hustler is kind of like a a buzzword so a lot of people are hustlers they're you know kind of like carving out their path making money on the side uh, making a name for themselves and so my sister jokes that Father Gregory is a pro bono hustler. <laughs> he, he, he's on a number of podcasts. He's writing his his dissertation. He, you know, is, as a priest is saying mass and hearing confessions, um, but he's doing it all all for free, <laughs> all for the greater glory of God. So he's a he's a pro bono hustler. Um, so again, if you're looking for for other other podcasts, check out Father Gregory Maria Op. Or I think on the internet he's Father Gregory Pine. And so here we are. Back at it again in part three of the catechism, the morality section, and we're in section one of part three. So recall that section one is kind of the general discussion of the topic, and then section two gets into the specifics. So we're talking about some of the big concepts in part three, section one, before we get into part three, section two, which specifically goes through each of the Ten Commandments. So we continue our discussion today of freedom. We, we started to talk in the last episode a little bit about um, 
humanity's freedom, man and woman's freedom. We are made with rational intellects and free wills to know the truth and choose the good. But because we are free, we could use our rational intellects to not know the truth, and we could use our free wills to not choose the good. So it's up to us. God does not force us to choose him nor love him. Uh, We can go our own way. But we believe that God is the source of life and love. He is truth, beauty, and goodness. So who would not want to say yes to that? So in paragraph 1749 today, we read that freedom makes man a moral subject. Man is the father of his acts. So again, freedom makes man a moral subject. The fact that we are free allows us to talk about man and woman as moral subjects, because we're, if we weren't free, there would be no reason to talk about morality. If we were, as I think I mentioned in the last episode, like these cute little sheep, which Christians are often stereotyped as being, just blindly following the shepherd, just kind of bleeding along, doing as we're told. Um, or if we believed in predestination, you know, that that we're predestined to do whatever God wants us to do, or we're kind of like little Christian robots that just do as we're programmed to do then there would be no need for the talk of moral decision-making. So freedom allows us to say yes or no to God and yes or no to reality. Uh, that's really really what we're talking about when we talk about moral decision-making. So there is, is an objective reality outside of us, which um, is very different from what, what society preaches and what I, what I think has kind of really like seeped into society. I don't think that we... I don't know that we necessarily think about uh, society being as being relativist anymore. It's it's the relativism has has soaked so deeply into our society that um, we kind of operate in that framework. Um, but we reality is not relativist. So reality is objective. It's not subjective. It's it doesn't depend on me. Uh, it exists outside of of myself, my thoughts, and my beliefs, and I don't determine it. So that is a car, whether I think it's a car or not. It doesn't depend on me. That car is moving, whether I believe it's moving or not. Again, not dependent on me if I'm not the driver. And that car hits me, whether I believe it hits me or not. It's not dependent on me or my beliefs about the moving car. Whoa, Becca, that, that example went dark really quickly. Um, things or objective realities exist outside of me, whether I believe in them, recognize them or not. And real actions have real consequences, whether I believe in them, recognize them, or not. So I might have mentioned in a previous episode how uh, a number of my students over the years, um, without even realizing it, talked as though the Judeo-Christian God was kind of like just an option for Jews or Christians. And um, those who were Buddhist or Hindu or atheist A number of my students believed, again, kind of unknowingly, um, because it's, again, that relativism has really just seeped, seeped, is that a word? (laughs) Sept into our culture, seeped into our culture, um, such that they kind of had the misunderstanding that, uh, okay, a Jew or a Christian would die and meet Yahweh or God. A Buddhist would die and potentially experience nirvana and not meet the Judeo-Christian God. An atheist would die, and that would be it. There would be no God for the atheist. So uh, a number of my students believed that 
it was kind of like a choose your own reality. Whatever you believed, that's what you encou- would encounter at the end. But the truth is, what we believe uh, will actually happen is that as, let's say, as Christians, as Catholics, we are either right and we'll die and we'll meet the Judeo-Christian God, Yahweh, God, Abba, Father, um, or we won't. We'll be dead in the ground and that's it. There is no God and this was all a misunderstanding and I just spent two years going over the catechism of the Catholic Church um, for no no real reason. Um, but but the reality is if, if atheists are right, then they're right. There's no God. We die and we don't encounter a God who doesn't actually exist. Um, but again, uh, because our that relativism has just really kind of pervaded our culture and our understanding of so many different things, not not just in the, the realm of religion, but in, in so many ways, um, so many areas of life, uh, we often approach religion, God, the church, morality, relativistically. And so the whole point of Catholicism, of divine revelation of Jesus entrusting these these teachings to the church to then hand on to hand down through the ages to the church and to all of the world is to help us to come to know and understand that reality whatever it is um, and live in accord with it use it properly so as to achieve the specific goals ends purposes um, to ultimately achieve the big goal end or purpose of life so I used, um, in the last episode, I, I used like very simple examples of like lawnmowers and clocks and sandwiches. To use a more serious example, the church teaches me about human sexuality so that I can use this dimension of my humanity, my sexuality properly when it comes to marriage and family life, when it comes to using or not using contraception, to getting an abortion or not getting an abortion, so that I can achieve the end, the goal, the purpose of my sexuality, and then as a result, because that's a component of my humanity, achieve the goal, the end, the purpose of my humanity, which is happiness. We see this on a local level. in terms of, of teaching children, whether it's our own children or when we teach children at school. Um, and that's we, we teach kids, you know, X, Y, and Z. This is how the world works so that kids can live in accord with it and use it or live in accord with it properly and then achieve happiness. So very simply, we teach kids that if you eat vegetables over cookies and ice cream, uh, that will make you more healthy and ultimately more happy. You know, your body will work better. You'll be able to move and play and run and, God willing, live longer and happier and more healthily. We teach our children to go to church, not because it's just an arbitrary rule that, you know, some of us believe and think we should impose on our children, but because we believe that that as human beings, we are made for a capacity with God. We're actually made to be in relationship with and worship, set aside time each week, each day to be with God. And so we teach our children, go to church, you know, at first very simply, okay, every Sunday we go to church. And then as the children grow, we teach them, you know, why and where that comes from and and more and more what, what that can lead to because we believe in the reality that we are made with a capacity for God. You might have heard that kind of like cutesy little phrase like, you know, every human heart has a God-shaped hole that only God can fill. Um, It's like a, you know, like a a cute little way of saying it, but it it gets at the reality that um, as many of us know from living lives and, and, uh, you know, striving after various things that, that it's only 
God who can satisfy that, that we are made for God. And that part of us, which is the fundamental part of us, can never be fulfilled um, by anything other than God. And so we teach our kids, again, not just to impose like an arbitrary rule and then set a benchmark and see if they live up to it. Um, But we teach them like, hey, this is reality. This is the world. This is what you're made for. And if you want to be happy, um, if you want to be happy for the rest of your life, then this is the path. This is what will, will lead you to it. If we're relativists with our children, again, we'll continue with this this example, um, it doesn't ultimately help our kids because reality will hit them in the face at some point. That metaphorical car uh, will, will hit them. So we could say, like, it's all good. Do whatever you want to do. Eat as much sugar, as many cookies and cake pieces of cake and ice cream as you want. But then the, the reality will hit them at some point. You know, why <laughs> mom, dad, or my teacher like why does my belly hurt why do I feel so lethargic and like gross um we could teach at you know uh, on a more serious note we could teach our kids when it comes to sexuality like it's all good do whatever you want to do um have premarital sex but then if our children proceed down that path um and start feeling you know anxious and used and disconnected from their relationships um we're doing them a disservice because we're not teaching them um, the reality. We're not teaching them this objective truth and how to live in accord with it or how to properly approach it. We want to help uh, our children, and God through the church wants to help each and every one of us come to know the truth and choose the good so that we can live happily. We can live in accord with those objective realities and achieve the, the goal, the end, the purpose of our humanity, which is happiness. Um, I recently had had an opportunity to tell Sophia the truth, and in wanting to spare her, I actually made it a little a little worse. So this is just you know anecdotal and not, not getting to the heart of what we're talking about. But she was playing with, we have this cute little neighbor friend the kids have this neighbor friend down the street who has she she comes over and and plays on the playground in the backyard with my kids and um she has three older brothers and I guess the kids my kids and she were were playing out front and um some of the older brothers walked by and Sophia came inside crying mom Aniela's older brother gave me a look like he thought I was weird or basically I don't know what he was thinking I said oh you know Sophia I'm sure he was just he wasn't even like intending to do that. I think he was just, you know, on his way. Maybe he looked over and had a funny look on his face, but he was not giving you a mean look or making fun of you. Well, Aniela comes in a couple minutes later. Sophia recounts it to her, her, her friend. And Aniela says, oh, yeah, he was pro- my brother was probably making fun of you. He does that to me all the time. I was like, oh, sorry, Sophie, shortchanged you on the truth there. And it seems the truth is actually setting you free. So, yes, he was making fun of you. Okay, on your way. To navigate this uh, discussion of morality and moral acts, the catechism sets us up with um, some theological terms or some some good basic terms to talk more specifically about morality, about moral decision making. And it's in uh, the 1750s where we learn uh, about three important words when it comes to moral decision making. So the the object, the end or intention, and circumstances. So every moral act, uh, 1750 tells us, is comprised of composed of these these three ingredients. So paragraph 1750 says, the morality of human acts depends on the object chosen, the end in view or the intention, and the circumstances of the action. 
The object, the intention, and the circumstances make up the sources or constitutive elements of the morality of human acts. So it's good to um, it's good to know uh, when, in speaking of morality. Sometimes it gets like you know, kind of like hazy gray area. Again, relativistic. Like, meh, you believe what you believe. I believe what I want to want to believe. Um, but in using these terms, we can kind of like hone in on the specifics of moral decision-making, which which I think is helpful. So first, paragraph 1751 talks about uh, the object chosen. The object chosen is a good toward which the will deliberately directs itself. It is the matter of a human act. So the object is the what. What is someone doing? Paragraph 1752 then explains the intention. In contrast to the object, the intention resides in the acting subject. The intention is a movement of the will toward the end. It is concerned with the goal of the activity. So the end, the intention is the the why. Why is someone doing what he or she is doing? And that resides in the acting subject, whereas the object or the matter, the what, the act of the, the moral the moral act, is uh, outside the person. It's an objective reality. Lastly, the circumstances are explained in paragraph 1754. The circumstances, including the consequences, are secondary elements of a moral act. Circumstances of themselves cannot change the moral quality of acts themselves. They can make neither good nor right an action that is in itself evil. So the circumstances are as you can tell by the word, uh, the, those things kind of around the the what and the why. So it might be the where, the how, the when, etc. Paragraph 1755 then sums up, a morally good act requires the goodness of the object, of the end, and of the circumstances together. So object and circumstances must be good for a moral act to be good. So to illustrate, let's use a couple examples. Example one, Becca brings a meal to her neighbor because the neighbor had surgery and can't cook. Okay, the object or the what is bringing a meal, so preparing and bringing a meal to the neighbor. Uh, the why, it seems that Becca wants to help or intends to help the neighbor, and then the circumstances will be um, because the neighbor had surgery, can't cook, those other kind of descriptors of the what and the why. Second example, Becca brings a meal to her neighbor because she's leaving for Switzerland and wants to ask the neighbor to babysit her kids. Okay, so the object in this case is the same. The what is preparing and bringing over a meal. The intention now has changed. It seems that uh, Becca's intention has gone from being uh, other-centered, so helping her neighbor, to now self-centered. Um, it's it's not a bad thing to ask someone to babysit your kids, uh, but it just changes the the tone of the the overall moral act. A third example: Becca brings a gross meal to her neighbor because she hates her neighbor's siding and has to look at it every day and wants to get back at her neighbor. Wow, this is taking a turn, Becca. Um, so the object is the same. Becca prepares and brings a meal over to her neighbor. Um, the intention is now bad, so she's seeking revenge uh, in a very passive-aggressive way. And the circumstances have also changed the, the quality of the moral act. So she's not just bringing a meal. She's bringing a gross meal. And so that changes the moral quality of the act. 
All right, fourth example. Becca brings a poisonous meal over to her neighbor because she doesn't like her neighbor's siding, no longer wants to look at it, and hopes that if her neighbor gets sick, she'll have to sell her house Someone else will move in and change the siding. Wow. Speaking of dark, Becca, that just went really dark. I was leaving the house the other day, and um, Lucy was on the floor. Lucy, who's very close to crawling and rolls all over the place. And basically, like, I was in a rush. Dan was taking care of the other kids. I was like, okay, babe, got to run. Love you. Lucy's in the family room. There's only, like, ten small objects around her she can choke on. I'll see you later. He goes, wait, wait, what? I was like, okay, just making sure you're paying attention. Love you. Bye. Please excuse this this dark example for the, the purpose of illustration. Um, but now we can say, so the object is now evil. Uh, Becca has prepared a meal, but it's a poisoned meal. Um, so completely bad. And then the intention or the end is bad. Her intention is to make the neighbor so sick that um, she no longer can live in her house. In this case, this fourth example, even if the circumstances are good, let's say that the meal is delicious, um, the object is bad because it's it's poisoned, um, the meal is poisoned, and can't be transformed into a good object. Even if the end is good. So let's say in some weird way, I think I'm helping my neighbor by teaching them, teaching him or her a lesson uh, that will, in the end, make them better people. Like, oh, this was all all to help you see, like, how terrible your siding is, and now you're more aware of, of other people, your neighbors, and the world around you. The object, making a deadly meal, is still inherently evil and cannot be transformed by the end or the circumstances. So the what, what one is doing is, or the, the object, what one is doing, is the most important ingredient. It's the objective reality outside of us end the intention and the circumstances might make it a little a little better or less bad but can't they can't completely change it so if an object what one is doing is inherently evil or bad it can't be transformed by the intention a good intention or the circumstances which potentially make it a little less bad so I'll use a recent example you might have seen in, in the news. Uh, Dennis Prager, who is, I believe, his claim to fame is he, he's a conservative pundit, revered by many. Um, so prolific writer, gives a number of, has given a number of interviews, et cetera. Recently said, I believe in an interview, that um, he believes that uh, pornography, the use of pornography and masturbation within marriage can be good in that it could help prevent adultery. So pornography and masturbation viewed by many as inherently evil, wrong, bad, um, he said could be transformed into good actions uh, in a spirit of preventing adultery in a marriage. As you can imagine, the internet blew up over this. Um, he, Dennis Prager, is I think he's, he's married for a third time, and so people were just really laying into him about the you know, the supposed, like, fruits of this decision-making um, and how, in reality, it, it it does not bear out. So paragraph uh, 17, what is it, 1756, I think, uh, sheds a little light on this. It says, It is therefore an error to judge the morality of human acts by considering only the intention that inspires them or the circumstances, environment, social pressure, duress, emergency, etc., which supply their context. There are acts in and of themselves, independently of circumstances and intentions, are always gravely illicit by reason of their object, such as blasphemy, 
perjury, murder, adultery. One may not do evil so that good may result from it. So I end the first half of this episode uh, with this paragraph because uh, not, not just now, but I think throughout human history, um, uh, many, myself included probably, uh, have said, will say that the ends justify the means or, you know, I'm doing this not so good or maybe even terrible thing because I hope that good will come from it or I think that in the end, this bad thing will be justified. So the catechism teaches us, um, God teaches us through, through the church, that the ends do not justify the means. In the case of, of grave error, of inherently evil, bad objects or things, the, the what of a moral circumstance, the moral um, object, bleh, the end of a moral decision, a moral act, um, some are inherently evil and cannot be justified by a good intention or diminishing circumstances. So again, paragraph 1756 just, uh, I think, very clearly sums it up by saying, one may not do evil so that good may result from it. Uh, Many will take the long view, well, in the end, you know, good will come from this. But every moment touches eternity. So eternity is, is now, is now, is now. And so to commit an evil act um, cannot be justified now now, now. And so this is just a a brief look at the ingredients, the components of moral acts, the object, the what, the end or intention, the why, and then circumstances, the the how, when, who, etc., which will set us up to talk more specifically about the Ten Commandments um, and moral decision making in section two of part three. So we'll take a brief break and then return on the second side to read paragraphs 1749 through 1775. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi and welcome back. We'll now read paragraphs 1749 through 1775. Article 4, The Morality of Human Acts. Freedom makes man a moral subject. When he acts deliberately, man is, so to speak, the father of his acts. Human acts, that is, acts that are freely chosen in consequence of a judgment of conscience, can be morally evaluated. They are either good or evil. The sources of morality. The morality of human acts depends on the object chosen, the end in view or the intention, the circumstances of the action. The object, the intention, and the circumstances make up the sources or constitutive elements of the morality of human acts. The object chosen is a good toward which the will deliberately directs itself. It is the matter of a human act. The object chosen morally specifies the act of the will insofar as reason recognizes and judges it to be or not to be in conformity with the true good. Objective norms of morality express the rational order of good and evil attested to by conscience. In contrast to the object, the intention resides in the acting subject. Because it lies at the voluntary source of an action and determines it by its end, intention is an element essential to the moral evaluation of an action. The end is the first goal of the intention and indicates the purpose pursued in the action. The intention is a movement of the will toward the end. It is concerned with the goal of the activity. It aims at the good anticipated from the action undertaken. 
Intention is not limited to directing individual actions, but can guide several actions toward one and the same purpose. It can orient one's whole life toward its ultimate end. For example, a service done with the end of helping one's neighbor can at the same time be inspired by the love of God as the ultimate end of all our actions. One and the same action can also be inspired by several intentions, such as performing a service in order to obtain a favor or to boast about it. A good intention, for example, that of helping one's neighbor, does not make behavior that is intrinsically disordered, such as lying and calumny, good or just. The end does not justify the means. Thus, the condemnation of an innocent person cannot be justified as a legitimate means of saving the nation. On the other hand, an added bad intention, such as vainglory, makes an act evil that in and of itself can be good, such as almsgiving. The circumstances, including the consequences, are secondary elements of a moral act. They contribute to increasing or diminishing the moral goodness or evil of human acts, for example, the amount of a theft. They can also diminish or increase the agent's responsibility, such as acting out of fear of death. Circumstances of themselves cannot change the moral quality of acts themselves. They can make neither good nor right an action that is in itself evil. Good acts and evil acts. A morally good act requires the goodness of the object, of the end, and of the circumstances together. An evil end corrupts the action, even if the object is good in itself, such as praying and fasting in order to be seen by men. The object of the choice can by itself vitiate an act in its entirety. There are some concrete acts, such as fornication, that it is always wrong to choose, because choosing them entails a disorder of the will, that is, a moral evil. It is therefore an error to judge the morality of human acts by considering only the intention that inspires them or the circumstances, environment, social pressure, duress, or emergency, etc., which supply their context. There are acts which, in and of themselves, independently of circumstances and intentions, are always gravely illicit by reason of their object, such as blasphemy and perjury, murder and adultery. One may not do evil so that good may result from it. In brief, the object, the intention, and the circumstances make up three sources of the morality of human acts. The object chosen morally specifies the act of willing accordingly as reason recognizes and judges it good or evil. An evil action cannot be justified by reference to a good intention. The end does not justify the means. A morally good act requires the goodness of its object, of its end, and of its circumstances together. There are concrete acts that it is always wrong to choose because their choice entails a disorder of the will, for example, a moral evil. One may not do evil so that good may result from it. The morality, excuse me, Article 5, the morality of the passions. The human person is ordered to be attitude by his deliberate acts. The passions or feelings he experiences can dispose him to it and contribute to it. Passions. The term passions belongs to the Christian patrimony. Feelings or passions are emotions or movements of the sensitive appetite that incline us to act or not to act in regard to something felt or imagined to be good or evil. The passions are natural components of the human psyche. They form the passageway and ensure the connection between the life of the senses and the life of the mind. Our Lord called man's heart the source from which the passions spring. There are many passions. The most fundamental passion is love, aroused by the attraction of the good. Love causes a desire for the absent good and the hope of obtaining it. This movement finds completion in the pleasure and joy of the good possessed. The apprehension of evil causes hatred, aversion, and fear of the impending evil. This movement ends in sadness at some present evil or in the anger that resists it. 
To love is to will the good of another. All other affections have their source in this first movement of the human heart toward the good. Only the good can be loved. Passions are evil if love is evil and good if it is good. Passions and moral life. In themselves, passions are neither good nor evil. They are morally qualified only to the extent that they effectively engage reason and will. Passions are said to be voluntary, either because they are commanded by the will or because the will does not place obstacles in their way. It belongs to the perfection of the moral or human good that the passions be governed by reason. Strong feelings are not decisive for the morality or the holiness of persons. They are simply the inexhaustible reservoir of images and affections in which the moral life is expressed. Passions are morally good when they contribute to a good action, evil in the opposite case. The upright will orders the movements of the senses it appropriates to the good and to beatitude. An evil will succumbs to disordered passions and exacerbates them. Emotions and feelings can be taken up into the virtues or perverted by the vices. In the Christian life, the Holy Spirit himself accomplishes his work by mobilizing the whole being with all its sorrows, fears, and sadness, as is visible in the Lord's agony and passion. In Christ, human feelings are able to reach their consummation in charity and divine beatitude. Moral perfection consists in man's being moved to the good not by his will alone, but also by his sensitive appetite, as in the words of the Psalms, my heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. In brief, the term passions refers to the affections or the feelings. By his emotions, man intuits the good and suspects evil. The principal passions are love and hatred, desire and fear, joy, sadness, and anger. In the passions, as movements of the sensitive appetite, there is neither moral good nor evil. But insofar as they engage reason and will, there is moral good or evil in them. Emotions and feelings can be taken up in the virtues or perverted by the vices. The perfection of the moral good consists in man's being moved to the good, not only by his will, but also by his heart. This brings us to the end of our reading selection, the end of our episode. Thanks for joining me for another week. Between this week and next week's episode, please connect with me on Instagram at Catholic Light Podcast, on Facebook under Rebecca Doherty. Please pray for me. I'll be praying for you. And in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends, and connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week, and in the meantime, God bless you.